0: with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. RSA offers business-driven security solutions that provide organizations with a unified approach to managing digital risk that hinges on integrated visibility, automated insights, and coordinated actions. RSA solutions are designed to effectively detect and respond to advanced attacks, manage user access control, and reduce business risk, fraud, and cybercrime. RSA protects millions of users around the world and helps more than 90% of the Fortune 500 companies thrive and continuously adapt to transformational change. For more information, visit SecurityWeek rsa security Welcome back to episode 19 of Security and Compliance Weekly.
1: We've been reflecting on our experiences at RSA, and one of the things that RSA does is reveal a lot of new things that are happening in the industry. So uh, we thought it'd be a natural progression to news of the week for Security and Compliance Weekly. There's definitely going to be some bleed over and overlap. As if you listen to the first segment, we were always, already giving some hints as what was uh, what things to come. Uh, do have a couple more announcements before we jump back into the discussion. First, we have officially migrated our mailing list to a new platform. You can sign up uh, on the list to receive invites to our virtual training courses, our webcasts, and other content that's relative to your interests. You can do this by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe and clicking the button to join the list. You can also submit your suggestions for guests by going to securityweekly.com forward slash guests and filling out the form. We review these on a regular basis and if we think they're a good fit, We will get in touch with you. Uh, And speaking of virtual training, we are getting ready to offer our very first uh, virtual training, which will be on March 19th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time uh, with a couple of my coworkers from online business systems, Mr. Rob Harvey Mr. Adam Keeler. Might have one or two others join us as well. Uh, They are going to provide training in the form of... uh, demonstrating how to generate a complex SHA-256 based password and then using password cracking tools to break it. If you want to get in on that and just have a general discussion about uh, as we were talking about in the previous segment, the, um, the weakness of passwords is a single form of authentication, register for that training uh, at securityweekly.com. In this case, look on the top for the webcast training uh, button. Click on that, and you'll get a uh, a menu bar that pops up, and from there you can register. Anyway, so gentlemen, we uh, we left off in the last segment, sort of trying to figure out uh, what if anything was one factor or two factor, but without drilling into the weeds, uh, and I'll and I'll mention this as a as an article. I want to say it's my first article in the wiki. Uh, it came up again when I was flying home. Somebody posted uh, a friend of mine in the, in the industry that works for Duo, which is uh, part of Cisco. Uh, they were quoted in a USA Today article talking about this whole concept of uh, replacing passwords with something better, which essentially is, uh, it, you know, to simplify things and not get into the details, substituting one form of authentication, which is something you know, traditionally a password, with another form of authentication, which is uh, typically a biometric, something that you you are, or perhaps a token or, or something like that that get, you get on a, a um, uh, your smartphone through an application or whatever, which is um, something that you have. But again, my question is is you know do we as security professionals think that substituting the single form of authentication is inherently better as good as worse than uh or are we in the wrong ballpark than what we've been saying the last couple years which is no don't do a single form of authentication do two-factor or what some people sometimes call multi-factor authentication thoughts anyone
2: We're not getting rid of passwords, period, right? In the article, uh, Wolfgang, great guy, right? Uh, If you get a chance to meet him in a conference, definitely do so. If you hear him speak and go up to him afterwards. Wolfgang says uh, uh, in here that within five years, we should be able to get rid of passwords altogether and be able to unlock all of our utilities the same way we unlock our phone. And I am calling utter BS on that. Right. The reason being is that we have too many systems Not that are using using too many. Yeah. Right. Using too many passwords, using too many different forms of of uh, authentication. Right. There's no way in five years now, 10 to 15, maybe. But that's going to require phasing out of the antiquated systems. Right. Can you install multi-factor authentication inside of DOS? We're going to cover uh, an article yes. about DOS here in a little bit. yes, you can install
3: multi-factor authentication inside of DOS because only 50 people still know how to use it because we're all (laughs) old. Okay,
2: it's like it's like Fortran and trying to find somebody that can that can code in Fortran for banks.
3: You Uh, know, all of NASA does. So try again. But,
4: but, But most of the passwordless systems I've seen advertised is really just using the other two factors. It's a token and or a biometric then paired with a token or a biometric right and so what really replaces the password out of the three um, otherwise we're just going to only have two factors instead of three factors and are we better or worse off under that umbrella so Look, multi-factor still the best way to go about this, right? If it's a password with a token or a password with a biometric, it's going to be better. But if I get rid of a password in lieu of a token or a biometric and use the other as my second factor, did I really change anything at the end of the day? Well, that's why I'm, a I'm trying.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to ask this philosophical question of you know, forget the specifics. There are three forms of authentication. And you you either use one or you use one type multiple times, or you use multiple different types, which typically you use two out of the three, which is we call two-factor authentication. I think some of these passwordless companies are simply suggesting either switching from the one form of authentication, however many times you use it, to another form of authentication and either using it with something different as a two-factor or doing multiple instances of that specific type of authentication. And I'm not convinced that that's where we want to go. I mean, do do we agree or disagree? I, that, I don't
4: know that it's any better, know,
1: Jeff. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is two-factor yeah. authentication? two factor authentication seems to be the way to go that's what we've said for a while maybe the ultimate would be using all three forms of authentication but anything less of that are are we really are we really um Uh, increasing the security uh, or increasing the likelihood of successful authentication if we're just simply replicating all the mistakes that we've made with passwords but now we're doing it with fingerprints or retinal scans or whatever else
4: or key fobs or um, rotating tokens
3: right okay so wait a second let's talk about this for a second we've gone to SSH keys private keys, public key systems, and a lot of system administration tasks. Is that a mm-hmm. single factor of authentication? And the answer is, of course, no, because you have to have the passphrase to unlock the key, which you have to have the private key. And if you remember your private key, I'm impressed. You're a scary dude uh, or lady. <laughs> uh, so you have something you have and something you know, which is a passphrase and a key. That's a multi-factor authentication right there. And that's how old now? How long have we been doing that, Jeff? Uh, at least 20 years. 20, okay, yeah. so we've been using multi-factor authentication and system administration, proper system administration, for a very long time. Or it's been available for over 20 years.
4: Yeah, not everybody has used it. <laughs> not everybody's it, using and it. And probably everyone still doesn't use it.
3: <laughs> a lot of people still don't, but the good system administrators, the ones you want working on your places, on your stuff, they're using it, right?
1: Okay, valid? Yep. Okay. They're, so they're means, using it yeah, if they want to multi- be PCI mm-hmm. compliant because it's a requirement right drink for how long Uh,
3: actually jeff i'm going to call on you for how long has that been a requirement
1: that's been a requirement i think since the release of version three which was in uh 2013
3: okay so quite a few years now uh seven years seven years roughly
1: seven yeah going on seven years
3: yeah seven years that's been a requirement in pci so for the and pci as much as I joke about it, is a very nice standard that a lot of people follow for the very simple reason: it's it's easy to understand, it's easy to use, it's it's very comprehensible. Okay. Uh, so for seven years, you've re- you've been required to use SSH keys, which are inherently multi-factor or two-factor authentication. There is no excuse not to use it uh, when YubiKeys keys are so widely available and so cheap. When you Google Authenticator is free, uh, there's just no reason. Period. End of story. Okay, um, that's number one. Number two is: Are these companies screwing with multi-factor? Are they saying, "Well, it's multi. It's it's better than single-factor. We're gonna go passwordless because we're gonna do your fingerprints, like Clear, which I was busting on Matt about. Sorry, Matt, uh, or whatever. And but it's still it's single-factor authentication. They're just faking it. Okay, faking multi-factor." I don't know Yeah, but, but the idea Yeah, but, is. Yeah, but
2: there's, there's, there's a bigger issue here. Passwords are just one method of trying to secure a system, right? There's so many other methods that need to be taken into account when you're talking about general security and doing the basics that passwords normally fall by the wayside, you know, even though they are such a critical component, you know, forced through the trees, they fall by the wayside.
1: Well, and... Keep in mind that passwords are one form of authentication. And authentication is one aspect of securing your data. You know, so, you know, again, trying to break it down to its component parts. I'm not trying to pick on any particular vendor, product, or solution. Just asking the question, you know, if we all agree that just using passwords is bad, and I think we would all agree with that, isn't it equally as bad to just rely on a biometric? Yes. Uh or or do which you we get just get in. Yeah, which we just talked about with
4: clear, right? I mean, yep. the reason Joshua's busting me, it's still a single factor authentication mechanism. Here's the right. real challenge in the space. It's not the password by itself. It's that how do you make two factor authentication easy for everybody to use? Whether it's a password tied with a token and or tied with a biometric. I don't care which three you pick. But Mm -hmm. two of those three have to be really easy to use to gain adoption. I think the biggest challenge here is we know passwords inherently are insecure, but whenever you add the second mechanism, whatever it is, it's not as easy to use and streamlined. And that is still the big challenge, which is why we don't see a lot of multi-factor authentication adoption. If we could make it simple and streamline it, then I don't care which two of the three factors you use it. Just make it easy to use.
2: Right, okay. but if a password gets compromised, then it leads to, uh, it leads it most likely leads to breaches, and this actually segues really well uh, into Jeff's second story, which is why no breach is bad news for your compliance, right? Uh, and in this, in the article, the 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 big point that I want to that that I want to tease out is that it's saying that breaches uh, are a catalyst for organizational change right? Uh personally, in my own humble opinion, I don't believe that there is such thing as good or bad PR. PR is just PR. You know, you're getting the, the name of the company out in front of people, right? Uh, I'm sure that there's only been one or two security companies, right? And you can tell me I'm wrong, uh, that have, because of a breach, had to shut down. But really utilizing a breach for good instead of bad by providing regular training and taking the fear of, out of reporting a breach, right? How many, uh, between the three of you, uh, uh, Matt, Jeff and Josh, uh, how many many of you guys have, have heard of companies saying, yes, we are afraid to report a breach. Oh God, what do we do? What are your thoughts on that?
3: We're afraid to report a breach, what do we do? Well, depends. Are you a mandated reporter? Are you under regulation? uh, various different things. I know of companies that have covered up breaches. I know of companies that have, uh, reported vastly different from what I would consider as the truth. Um, and I know of companies that have come absolutely clean and done the right thing. And, and I'm, I'm stating that very clearly because they're doing the right thing morally, ethically
1: appropriately. Um, Jeff, have you ever come across anybody who covered up a breach? Uh, in my experience, and, I, and I've worked with quite a few uh, entities over the years that were coming off of a breach, uh, they typically, they didn't have a problem with reporting the breach. Uh, somebody came to them and said, oh, by the way, you've been breached. Um and and that, that, in my experience, has been much more the norm. You know, in the PCI world, credit card breaches, the major companies over the last 10, 15 years, 99 times out of 100, uh, either the card brands or law enforcement are seeing fraud being committed, and they do the analysis and they and they look for the the single point of common occurrence where all these stolen cards are are coming from that are being used to commit fraud, and it points back to you know the TJX companies or Heartland Payment Systems or Hannaford or more recently Target, Home Depot, and so on and so forth. Very rarely do the companies that I work with. Uh, in my little neck of the woods, which is the PCI world, do they see the breaches themselves? It does happen on occasion. And, and when it has happened the couple times I am aware of, uh, when they know about it, they are very quick to report it because they are, you know, they're required to by the card brands to report uh, breaches within 72 hours or something like that.
4: Yeah, right. most of the states have breach disclosure laws in the U.S. now. If you're in scope, you're going to have to disclose. I mean, there might be some cases where you don't have to because you're under the threshold or don't hit the requirements based on the different state requirements. But right. now, I mean, that I think the reason why we have so much angst around breach is the breach notification laws forced us to talk about the breach, right? And so it's, all, it's almost had a it's somewhat almost of a negative impact in some respects. I mean, it's great to disclose, but then everybody's like, Oh my gosh, there's another breach. And everybody freaks out. It's like these breaches were happening before. We just didn't have to disclose them. Now that they're disclosed, it creates this, you know, interesting PR, like ambulance chasing kind of mentality. Anyways.
1: Yeah. So, you know, Scott, to flip it back on you, um, uh, you know, if, if breaches are not necessarily a good thing, but they can sort of help you cement your compliance programs, uh, what is your first article talking about in terms of uh, how compliance programs can help build a better business culture?
2: Um, so the author, uh, who was it? Uh, Dylan Tokar, uh, coming out of the Wall Street Journal, uh, right up front. Uh, is saying that the lengths to which a company goes to strengthen its compliance program in the face of government investigation can make a big difference in the outcome, right? So in here, we're laying out the uh, the thought process that uh, by putting in some compliance regime, doesn't matter what it is, right, uh, can help you get to the basics and be more prepared for uh, 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 for business
4: culture, right? A lot of so the compliance... I, that's, that, go ahead. So can I counterpoint that for a second? I, I, the premise, yeah. I think, is interesting, but let me give you the counterpoint. Did the $5 billion Facebook fine really change the business culture at Facebook?
2: mmm if I if you're mm-hmm. asking for my own humble opinion or for me to go on record, it <laughs> probably had the to answer, do with that cappuccino really for an hour not, or two. It, it has no been. you're you know, right. Face, so Facebook so that continued to do what they what they wanted to do uh, with data, with third party uh, vendors and access to data and privacy. You know, Facebook uh, Facebook, so you bring up an interesting an interesting thought here. Facebook has not been transparent enough with how they handle data how they handle privacy uh they have not publicized it well enough right so a fine like that sure it gets it on record sure it may take a little bit of money out of facebook's bottom line but facebook is still going to continue to do what they do because the demand is still there
4: yeah and, and that's the look i i get it right in that if you're under regulatory compliance, you could build a better business culture and a better environment. But I've also seen cases where that doesn't work. And so this is not always the case when uh, a government investigation actually makes you better. Sometimes it doesn't change you at all.
3: Mm. Truth. Truth. I mean, how many fines have been handed out that, uh, what did Google get fined? $57 million. And everybody went, that's like back pocket money for them. What's the big deal? Right?
4: and jump change
3: you know the, the the fines were supposed to be as i recall for gdpr were supposed to be dissuasive and large and effectively to make you think about doing it ever again it was the smack upside the head to make you go wow that was stupid i don't think i'll ever do that and honestly up to date i don't think they have been
1: so yeah. and that and that begs the question uh Uh, And this is a poor attempt at segue, I guess, but, uh, you know, there's certainly large companies that don't feel the impact of uh, the fines. They're just not big enough that they make a difference. I think there's probably a a middle category of companies where they do feel the the pain. Uh, Do those companies or others... Uh, are they able to get cyber, cyber insurance to help them offset those costs and fines? And how does that tie into, uh, the ever changing threat landscape, which is Matt, your number one story.
4: Yeah. I, I mean, we're seeing a rise of cyber insurance. We've talked about this on this show. We've, we've definitely yep. had some interesting conversations yep. around it, right? Mm-hmm. That. You know, unless we see changes in the way policies are underwritten in the data they collect and the in the premiums, I don't know that a compliance program or the culture really has much of an impact. I think this is what we're going to continue to see, and we're starting to see more uptick as this article identifies more cyber insurance policies being written. Great. But are they being written with the right understanding of what the potential risk is to the organization? Are they applying the right controls and, and have the right culture in place? Uh, yet to be seen, I think, on that one.
2: So yeah. cyber insurance for this article, for, for, for the, the, the effects of this article, um, really should be a discussion between legal sea level and whoever's in charge of security, right? And the reason being uh, is that an open channel of communication should be established between the three for when the policy needs to change, Right. One of the big one of the big uh, uh, sections in here is about anticipate the change when choosing a policy. Right. Just because you say you need PCI, you know, and you figure out that you need HIPAA. Right. You should be going back to your cyber insurance carrier and saying, you know, we goofed. We need HIPAA. What do you need from us? Yes, we have a firewall. Great. Ten million dollar policy.
4: Perfect. Wait, is it supposed to work like that? Yeah, and and they well, even talk about cyber insurance policies are not the be all end all of security. This is not a replacement for a security program. This is an augmentation to your program. But you can't just say I'm not going to do anything with my security program and buy cyber insurance and be fine.
1: Yeah, I, I think the I think the the problem is or, or the 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 perception. Maybe it's a perception issue, but you know, large companies struggle with having huge budgets and 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 still many times they get breached you know the 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 middle companies It can still be large companies that just don't have nearly the budget that the 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 quintessential enterprise that everybody at RSA targets, you know, financial services, banks, and insurance companies, and so forth. Everybody else struggles with, you know, there's no way we can afford to spend as much as we need to on security. And so cyber insurance becomes that augmentation, the stopgap. Uh, on the question of, uh, you know, what's the appropriate amount of money to spend? What's the appropriate percentage of, of revenue to spend on security programs? And, you know, when the threat is roughly the same, you know whether you're large or small in terms of revenue, comparing yourselves uh, and the cost of the products are roughly the same, you know, what do you do? And then throw in a wrinkle, Josh, this is your cue, uh, throw in something like, uh, you know, whether you believe it's real or not, whether you think it's a big problem or not yet, but just this whole idea of the prospect of there being a pandemic or some yeah. other kind of natural disaster that puts sort of, uh, you know, contingency and disaster recovery and continuity plans in, in question. Uh, now's your moment, Josh, to, to address you I think it. You had sort of a couple stories that kind of touch on uh,
2: this. Here we go. Put the waiters
3: on. Well, I, okay, so I, I put a few stories
1: in in, in, the, in the wiki, and
3: the idea is, is interesting. I mean, you know, Scott, you mentioned earlier that RSA, a lot of people were concerned about coronavirus, and I know that uh, on Facebook, a good friend of mine, Arian Evans, and his wife, Mary, mentioned that in San Francisco Bay Area, Costco's and Walmarts and Targets are cleaned out of rice and beans and aspirin, and what are they going to do with 3,500 aspirin and whatever else? And Dude, so the amount of people
2: who crazy. are who are ordering Clorox wipes through Instacart and DoorDash right now is through the roof. It's crazy. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, it is absolutely crazy. Uh, so my wife does uh, uh, that sort of gig stuff on the side. Uh, and she said that the uptake in paper products, the uptake in water, like bottled water, uh, the uptake in Clorox products and bleach is through the roof. So quite literally, she makes a beeline. Whenever she goes in and buys something for somebody, she makes a beeline right to that stuff if it's on their list and gets that first because she doesn't know if it's going to go out.
3: Well, they, they, the, the Arian has been documenting his local San Francisco Bay Area stores and they're basically emptying. Uh, they, mm-hmm. All the perishables were gone at a Costco and uh, it, it was just, it was fascinating. So you, you're talking about, honestly, and I just had lunch with a gentleman who runs... excuse me, a first aid squad in New Jersey and is part of a a research initiative out of Rutgers. Uh, Evan Chagosky, great guy. And we were talking about this. He goes, honestly, it's it's a flu variant, Uh, sort of. Wash your hands, stay clean. Don't let people sneeze on you. You're fine. It's no big deal. Are some people going to die? Yes, absolutely. We're going to have some some sick people go. And it's unfortunate, but it's the way it is. Uh, The flu, we lost, what did you say, 16,000? It's 18,
4: yeah, I've got the latest numbers in front of me because I want to put this in perspective for a second, right? We've had six deaths, I think, all in the state of Washington for coronavirus. Mm -hmm. We've had 18,000 deaths from the flu already this year, up 65% from last year. And there's another estimated 32 million that are sick with the flu. So put that in perspective for a second, right? We've is already had just... 16,000 deaths with the flu, but only six coronavirus. But coronavirus is creating this mad rush dash to go get all these sanitary things that are the same things you would prevent the flu with, but yet nobody's concerned about the flu. So well, could there's... you
2: make a corollary into people doing the basics?
4: <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. I I going mean, there, we we, we so talked
3: got...
4: so much about
2: companies doing the basics, you know?
3: We, we've it's got people cyber that, hygiene, that are used to the risk of flu. They're <laughs> habituated. That what, what's the word when you're on a drug and you can't take you can't feel the buzz anymore? It's, is it habituated? They're 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 habituated to flu. They're 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 used to that risk. That is a risk they understand. But coronavirus is a risk they don't understand. I'm more worried, honestly, about people than I am about coronavirus. Because I think people and panicking and and hoarding and admittedly, the fact that the the Chinese sort of uh, manufacturing pipeline has dried up and emptied right now because they shut half the country down to stop the spread of it. Okay, well done. That's a great quarantine measure. And it apparently worked. Apparently, they're over the hump. But on Mm -hmm. the other side of the coin, we've got a virus that has a great long incubation rate. It's going to, or whatever they call it, when it lies dormant in you, but you're still contagious, you don't know it yet, you're asymptomatic. You're a carrier. It, you're a carrier. And so what if we had a virus that was significantly more uh, lethal than, than the flu? What if we had a virus that was so lethal it was, it was terrifyingly crazy, something seriously weaponized? Uh, so this is something that well, not necessarily weaponized. That's biological warfare, but something that is naturally unpleasant, shall we say, and will kill a lot more than the six or the 18,000 from the flu. That's pandemic. That's terrifying. But there are things you can plan ahead for. The last article I put in there is decision science planning. That's awesome. Okay, you can plan these things out. You can discuss, you can decide, you can, you can assign risk variables. And you can price your risk in terms of what it's going to do to my business, what it's going to do to my family, what's going to happen in supply measures. You can plan these things out, and that's part of what's beautiful about compliance is we can help understand the the institutional risk management. We can help. Yeah, understand it, over us.
2: over at, over at Red Lion, we, Josh, you and I have had many discussions about do we do we stop travel, do we keep going on travel, right? Uh, and that has led to uh uh, us worrying about uh uh our conferences still going to be going on right Right. now Mm -hmm. are we going to see a rise in virtual conferences are we going to see an uptake in uh virtual conference platforms like skype like uh zoom right uh but i can tell you one of the sponsors of uh uh uh, that we talk about at the top of the the first segment infosec world is still going on it is still happening uh you know Mm -hmm. we've been in constant contact with them uh, and they are pushing forward. So for those of you who are wondering if it's still going to happen, if we're still going to throw the CTF, if you still want to get involved, the answer is yes.
1: Great. So to, to try to wrap this up, uh, it's been an interesting discussion and I, and I think Scott, you, you had said probably best that they're well, and we're all echoing it, that, uh, You know, uh, in in terms of sort of disaster planning, and in terms of whether there's a a world health crisis or a regional health crisis, if you're doing the types of things that you should be doing, you're 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 as well prepared as you can be. Much like in the security and compliance world, compliance tells companies to do the basics, do the sort of the basic hygiene of security, and if you're doing all those things. you know, it's it's not that you shouldn't panic or shouldn't be concerned, but you are as prepared as you should be for whatever that, that thing is that, that uh, you you either know the risk or don't know the risk that's coming around the pipe. But we could go on and on, but we need to wrap for this week. It's uh, It was great to get back on the air again after our furlough last week in San Francisco. And so until next time, uh, on behalf of my distinguished hosts and myself, we're going to call it. So this is uh, a wrap for Security and Compliance Weekly.